0: Cutting through an overload of information to get to the heart of the story, this is The Point.
1: Welcome to The and an opinion show coming to you from Beijing. I'm Li Xin. Is China on the brink of economic collapse once again? This might be the impression one gets from scanning international headlines. They may have made such insinuations after cherry-picking data released by China's State Administration of Foreign Exchange on Sunday. The 2023 balance of payments data shows a... 33 billion US dollar increase in China's direct investment liabilities marking a significant decrease from the previous year what does it mean exactly on a different note data released by China's Ministry of Commerce showed that the actual annual Foreign direct investment remains at a high level, with the latest registering 1.1 trillion yuan or around 150 billion US dollars for last year. So, how do we interpret the trend of China's foreign direct investment over time? And where does China stand? in the international picture. I'm pleased to be joined from Portland, Oregon, the United States by Professor Liang Yan, Kramer, Chair Professor of Economics at uh, William Met University and on the line from Jakarta by Professor Bert Hoffman of the East Asian Institute of the National University of Singapore. Welcome to both our guests. So before we talk about the Chinese number, let's take a look at the United Nations numbers for last year from UNCTAD, which is the UN specialized agency in terms of uh, foreign direct investment. Global FDI or foreign direct investment flows showed a steep 18% decline for last year. FDI inflows to developed countries and developing countries were down by 28% and 9% respectively. So uh, Professor Liang, how do you assess the general trend that is weak and uneven in Ong Tan's words?
2: Right. Good to talk to you, Liu Xin. So first of all, I think the Western media's uh, numbers uh, could be very misleading. Uh, They are relying on the SAFE, which is a a state administration of foreign exchanges number and looking at the balance payment transactions. And so a lot of the numbers were captured that are not really what we normally associated with the utilized FDI. So I think the Ministry of Commerce, uh, the number 153 billion dollars of FDI inflow, which is slightly uh, lower um, than last year. Uh, 8% lower, I think that is more of the number that really indicates the foreign investments yeah. in China. But against the overall now, picture uh,
1: I just painted, yeah, for, for the whole world.
2: Absolutely, I think you're right. We need to put that eight percent slowdown uh, in context. So one of them, as you just mentioned, is that the FDI is declining. It is also declining uh, in terms of the FDI inflows to the developing world. When you look at India, um, their FDI inflow has gone down by 47 percent. ASEAN has gone down by 16 percent. Brazil, 20 some percent. Mexico, also 21 percent. So that's against this big, you know, context that the, this big picture that, you know, FDI uh, inflows to many developing countries has gone down. And that largely has to do with the fact that, you know, many of the advanced countries have raising their interest rates and these interest rate hikes um, have increased the returns on um, their assets. And so that attracted a lot of the FDIs mm-hmm. flowing to those respective, yeah. you know, advanced countries. Let's, um, and yeah, let, let, me, let me, let me
1: yeah, uh, we, we come back to you a bit later, Professor Liang. Let me go to Professor Hoffman here for his assessment because there's a difference between uh, direct, foreign direct investment inflows or outflows with direct investment liabilities. It's a little bit technical here, but I want to go to Professor Hoffman. Tell us, how much does this number, indicating direct investment liabilities, reveal the health or attractiveness of the fundamentals of an economy?
0: well that consists of two parts one is really direct investment as we would understand it i.e. investing in in factories and in businesses in a country but the second is also that is basically more portfolio investment that is retained earnings that are kept in a country uh, but they're being withdrawn if macroeconomic changes i think a lot of what we see in china's numbers is the latter part so the balance of payment numbers are are so poor in part because companies that before use their retained earnings to temporarily invest in china's capital markets now take them out and they invest elsewhere particularly in europe and the united states where interest rates have gone up sharply i think that's the main picture but the second part is globally we've seen a lot of uncertainty there's a lot of uncertainty in trade a lot of uncertainty in growth and i think investors are a bit reluctant to commit Uh, as to where would they invest next. For China, uh, the added uncertainty is the U.S.-China dispute, uh, the threat of decoupling, the threat of de-risking, and, and companies feel uncomfortable in making that at this particular point in time. Mm. If you look at
1: the actual annual foreign direct investment in China, the trajectory is actually quite different from the kind of picture you're going to see in mainstream international media. As I said, uh, we found, we did a bit of uh, you know investigation, and the numbers, for instance, for the year 2020 was one trillion RMB. For the year 2021 was 1.15 trillion. The year 2000 2022 was 1.23 trillion uh, for last year's 1.1 trillion. So it's it's a, a rather tranquil line, if I can put it there, a stable development. And China's foreign direct investment for last year was actually higher in 2023, higher than that in 2020. Professor Liang, what does that say about the kind of actual foreign direct investment in China?
2: Right. I think you are absolutely right. So this number that we're looking at, one trillion, hundred and fifty three billion last year, was eight percent down uh, from the two thousand twenty two level. But let's not forget, two thousand twenty two was actually the highest on record uh, since the comparable data was published, you know, in two thousand fourteen. So despite you know the small slowdown, or like you said, uh, was still relatively steady change, um, you know, the FDI in China is still uh, you know high. And I think that also speaks to, you know, the confidence in the Chinese economy, despite, you know, a lot of the Western media also, you know, talks about China becoming increasingly in, uh, in uh, uninvestable. Uh, but I think I also wanted to make the point, uh, when we look at the general FDI, picture, we also need to understand, you know, from a foreign business point of view, China's economy is changing. Uh, It is now moving towards a new model that is led by digital economy, you know, new energy sectors, new technologies. And so a lot of companies do need to pivot and recalibrate. Um, For example, uh, Mitsubishi, right, was wondering if they should continue to produce cars in China, given that, you know, China's automobile production and also EVs Mm -hmm. are now so competitive. And so for some of the markets seeking FDI, they have to need to rethink their strategy um I also echo with what uh Professor Hoffman was talking about that the US China relationship uh could have uh, some negative impacts. Uh one case yeah. in point China used to account for 48% um, of the global chip related FDI but 2022 that number plunged to only 1%. So that, you know, has to do with the US yeah. restrictions on, you know, the the high tech uh exports yeah. and investment well, in China. Um I, yes. I do want to. I, would,
1: I do want to point out there is, um, you know, some very striking graphics on international media reports. For instance, this, this one, and not against this particular media, but this one by Bloomberg, for instance. Uh, the, the headline says: "Foreign direct investment into China collapses." It equals foreign direct liability to inbound foreign direct in- investment. So you see, over the past few years, there is a wild fluctuation. According to their chart, China was the darling for the world during COVID times, and the chart saw a huge upsurge during 2019 2020 2021 and and all of a sudden now it kind of fall out of favor professor hoffman does that really reflect the actual movement or trend of foreign direct investment for such a chart because it's it's very striking and it could be misleading i, I wonder what's your thoughts are
0: these are the balance of payment numbers and as i said before they're very complicated there's a number of what really are more portfolio investments put into that mix so the picture of utilized foreign investment may be a better reflection and they're much higher at the same time that's a very slow moving target ie companies make plans and they get implemented over three to four years and therefore that's what you see in this year those are the plans three years back uh, We we do see some uh, t- tendencies in surveys and Uh, We at the East Asia Institute, we've done our own surveys and companies that are becoming more reluctant and they're threading sideways if you want. So they're still reinvesting the profits that they make in China, but additional capital from abroad is becoming less less frequent at this point in time. So Mm. there is a bit of a hesitancy, but that's not just China. So there's also the rest of the world. Where do supply chains, uh, where are they moving? Who's going to be in the lead? Where should should companies be in in future to be at the center of those supply chains? That's a big question now, and there's a lot of uncertainty.
1: Uh, sure, sure, and uh, I'm just wondering, you know, whether this kind of reporting and the kind of association, um, again, Professor Liang, we're looking at very um, influential media organizations such as Financial Times. This time, they claimed that China's inbound direct investment fell to its lowest level in 30 years, which is apparently not the case because China's foreign inbound foreign direct investment last year was actually higher than the year two thousand and twenty as i just said and yet how misleading could that chart be because china's foreign direct investment inflow is at a very high level still and not lower compared to many other countries in the world except the united states where the interest rate has gone up much higher
2: Right. I mean, I agree with you. I think you know this reporting uh, could be very misleading. Uh, But the same media that you mentioned, for example, Bloomberg, they also in other reports that talked about China's actual utilized FDI is you know one hundred fifty three billion dollars, and again, just a slight drop from two thousand twenty two. That's good. So I think the reporting, right? Right. I they, they do have different kinds of reporting. Like you said, you know, this is really how you cherry-pick some of the data and try to make a different story about, you know, China's environment or its business, uh, you know, environment. Um, but that said, I think, again, we need to also think about, you know, some of the substance here um, that on the one hand, I think, you know, just by looking at the FDI numbers, if not, it doesn't really speak a lot about, you know, the reality. Um, you know, Untan also mentioned that, you know, for example, there has been an 8% increase last year. In terms of the greenfield project announcements, mm-hmm. yeah. so we are likely to see, you know, the return of the FDI. Yeah. And let's not also forget about, you know, at this point in time, what matters really for China is not the amount of FDI, but really the quality of the sure. and what kind of foreign investors can bring to the yeah. country. Uh, uh, when you look I- at high-tech manufacturing, for example.
1: Yeah, it's it's definitely going up in terms of high tech and especially high tech manufacturing. Very quickly, Professor Hoffman, how do you look at the number of joint ventures that are set up in China last year? Increased by 40 percent, went up by 54,000 and the investment in high tech manufacturing also gone up by 6.5 percent.
0: Quite striking. I think there's also a, a whole new part of the world that is getting interested in investing in China. So, some of that you find reflected in new joint ventures being set up
1: Mm -hmm. Definitely um, a transition period I would say from quantity to quality we'll keep a close watch on the situation Many thanks to Professor Liang Yan and Professor Bert Hoffman for sharing with us your valuable insight When we come back after the break AI model Sora has shocked the world by generating ultra real imaginative uh, scenes from text prompts. How is the world going to work together to make sure that such revolutionary technologies will be more other force for good stay with us
0: making room for all opinions and seeing events from more than one side this is the point
1: are you looking at the real Liu shin or an AI generated one well this time it is real but who knows in the near future now in the past week one name has been on the lips of everyone Sora a text-to-video tool which generated a one-minute video of that woman walking down a nighttime street in Tokyo the images unveiled by open AI the San Francisco startup company which also launched a chat GPT at the end of two thousand and twenty-two sent instant shockwaves around the world while the inception of Sora excites many the question looms for many more what kind of uncertainty will the technology bring to our future autonomous robots and A.I. were already considered a much heightened risk for citizens around the world last year, according to a risk perception survey released recently. Authorities around the world, including in China, the U.S., the European Union, have been raising to try to mitigate the risks with regulation. So what kind of action is needed to keep Sora and its counterparts a force for good? What stands in the way of international collaboration given the current geopolitical tensions? Can we overcome? the differences. I'm pleased to be joined from Beijing by Zeng Yi, professor at the Institute of uh, Automation at the Chinese Academy of Sciences. He's also a member of the UN Advisory Body on AI. I'm also joined from Hong Kong by Stephen Hoffman, CEO and and chairman of Founders Space and author of the book, Make Elephants Fly. Gentlemen, welcome to the point, and elephants are flying at this moment. So, um... Now, the, the thing is, right, we all looked at uh, these videos generated by Sorry and go, wow. I mean, 10 months ago, the difference was huge. We were looking at uh, uh, Will Smith, gen- AI-generated Will Smith eating spaghetti, and everybody was laughing off from their chair. And now we're looking at AI that is probably realer than reality. Now, in terms of regulation, which is my focus, what kind of specific challenge is such revolutionary te- technology posing? Regulators, Professor Zeng.
3: I wanted to echo what you said that I, as a technic, both technical and governance researchers of AI, I will never have an interest to talk to a fake Liu Xin, a digital Liu <laughs> Xin. This liuxin, is a real one. Because I promise you. we have humanities uh, underlying that. Well, on the other side, we do see the you know the the, the progress of uh, of AI. Now it can generate very smooth uh, digital uh, videos. Well, the real challenge now is that now you cannot say seeing is believing what you see is probably not true Mm. Uh, in most cases it might be fake so this is the real challenge so in this way actually the good part is that it can be used you know to digital uh, media to entertainment that is the good part to reduce to reduce uh, the the human uh, what human has to do and to assist human beings well the downside is really that uh, for for the global trust um, and and many of the issues uh, related to uh, you know safety uh, issues that that is the real challenge it has challenge to digital forensics it has to challenges to you know the Police, so to creating uh, fake information, and also to create fake information during uh, global uh, or national votes. So we really need, uh, you know, both the national governance and also the international governance for uh, video, both video and. and Uh, textual generative (laughs) AI. Yeah. Uh,
1: Stephen, what are the major concerns in your part of the world? I mean, in in the United States, in Western countries, developed countries. Do you think there are major differences in this regard in terms of the perceived risks, you know, that can be uh, brought about with this uh, technological uh, progress?
4: Yes. So in Silicon Valley, people are very bullish on AI. I mean, people in general, believe that AI is the future. And the US government will not put the brakes on the development of artificial intelligence because everyone is afraid of falling behind. So the risks though are enormous. So we right now with artificial intelligence, you can create video that is indistinguishable from real video and this will only get better now these videos still have a few telltale signs Mm -hmm. that it's not real if you look very closely most people won't look closely but if you do you can tell but in the future even those small signs will go away so the people are worried in a number of areas number one it's going to put a lot of people out of work i mean think of how many people work in creating videos creating content the whole hosting talk shows Yes, exactly. <laughs> you know, all that can be done now with simply typing in keywords. And the videos are absolutely amazing. I mean, they they come out fully edited with camera angles and everything else. And they're going to be able to layer on music and voice. So where we're headed, there'll be an impact on jobs. There will be an impact on... In, in the West, we're very concerned with democratic elections and what that means in the West. And if you can simulate... Uh, anything, you know, campaign things, if you can put out negative videos about a political candidate right before an election, who's to stop you? And these videos can go viral. Mm. And then fraud. Imagine your relative calling you up with your voice, maybe their image and saying, I'm in dire trouble. I need money. Send me money. But you yeah. cannot tell the voice or the image from your mother, your mother your father yeah and so you wire them
1: okay there are many many
4: scenarios sure.
1: Sure. like sure. that um it seems that some of the risks are uh, similar to the ones that are perceived here in china professor zong um, china of course has different sets of challenges i understand but i was just you know browsing through the video channels and i saw a AI, apparently ai generated woman talking about you know giving a lesson on history um Apparently, she is a virtual figure, but it was not marked that it was AI. And people without the kind of literacy or basic ability to tell the difference are simply unable to tell, let alone the older generation who don't have the kind of technology savviness. For instance, my parents, they could well treat this person as a real person and really buy into that. What kind of specific challenges is China faced with in terms of regulating AI? Is China going to put some sort of a break? On the development or application of, of AI tech technologies,
3: I think both uh, the the U.S. and China has very uh, similar challenges in uh, the in generative AI's the the examples actually that you gave uh, similarly they they happened uh, everywhere in the in the world so but what china has done is really on the regulation of generative ai that the china cyberspace administration of china released their uh, regulation on generative ai something which is relevant to your example is that now in china when you create generative ai videos you have to market uh, based on artificial intelligence based on generative ai uh, otherwise you know th- these uh, ministers will have uh, regulation uh, regulative steps for you so i think that's really uh, essential both from the government side and also from the developer and also the industry side that we need to do self-regulation we need to uh, keep these uh, you know, generations to be marked uh, very explicitly. We don't, we, we cannot mislead the general public yeah. uh, well, in that way. So I yeah. think that is really important.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, aside from these common uh, challenges, it is interesting because Chinese Foreign Minister Wang Yi talked about China's wish to have a, an UN body, UN institution set up in terms of AI governance. And I have not heard uh, other countries, especially major countries such as the United States or or European countries, echo this idea. Why does China particularly want that? And what's the difference between uh, AI governance body under the UN and the UN advisory body, high level advisory body to which you are a member, Professor Zong?
3: Uh, Actually, the challenge of AI is everywhere. Well, as you can see, now we have some domestic regulations and institutions. We have some regional uh, networks. But actually, what really matters is that how can we deal with this in a global manner? What is the interoperability among these regional networks and also these different Countries for that we need a global coordination mechanism. So we need to track the record who should be believed to do you know the the global uh, coordination uh, of technology of this of this society and also of AI. So in, in that case, I think uh, the Chinese government believes that the UN system is the right place to do the global coordination, N- not really to say that the UN system should take care of everything, but the role of the UN system on AI should coordinate the regional networks in a more effective way, and, re- and also to coordinate member states on interoperabilities, on exchanges, uh, on sharing of risk and, and dealing with risks uh, altogether. So I think by that it cannot be solved by regional networks, so th- that is the role mm-hmm. uh, for UN. UN. So, yeah. I, and I, the track record uh, means uh, the Chinese government uh, is based in to to support uh, the UN system.
1: Yeah, yes. um, Professor Hoffman. It seems that uh, some other countries do not necessarily um, share the idea or are not very excited about it at this stage. We uh, know that there was a G seven meeting in Hiroshima last year where G seven countries reached some kind of a comprehensive, you know, framework about AI governance. Um, Is there this kind of idea that developed countries are going to do their job in terms of ai governance uh, with their values and developing countries doing a different you know system are we going to see another raise for dominance potentially here
4: so what we're seeing now is there's a lot of talk about governance and i personally feel a global governance is a very important thing but in reality the countries that are ahead in ai are not going to slow down because the countries that are leading the way see it to their greatest advantage to have the most powerful AI. Because if they have the most powerful AI in the world, then even if there's a cyber attack or there's other disruptions, they will be in a position to use that AI to thwart those attacks. But if they dial back the development, then they risk somebody else. Promising.
1: So, so they are they are producing something that can be weaponized and they want to weaponize that technology to use against that weapon. <laughs> this is crazy.
4: Well, did you imagine this. Yes. So people are afraid, right? Because we know AGI is coming and that and super intelligence is coming. And at that point, AI will be so powerful that literally the ones who control it control everything. So, that, so they want to make sure their first to that end goal. Yeah. But But the United States.
1: Yeah. Sorry, I'm running out of money. The United States is keen on talking to China in terms of AI, which is a good thing. Right. The two leaders agree to that and they will have they have already started engagement. What is the importance of that and what should be really the focus here? Professor Hoffman, really quickly, please.
4: I think it's really important to have this dialogue because at the root of it is fear and distrust. We need to overcome that if we're going to form any sort of cooperative framework.
1: Okay. And uh, Professor Tseng, what are China and the United States going to talk about, going to focus on in terms of AI governance?
3: For both countries, if one of the countries does not really develop AI in a safe way, it will be very dangerous to the other side. So this is why both the US and China has to talk to each other to remove all the AI safety issues altogether and to build a joint safety framework so that it benefits for all All humanity. Um,
1: Quickly, yes or no, Stephen, shall I have a digital mini-me?
3: You will have to in the future, (laughs) unavoidable.
4: (laughs) Shall I do it fast enough
1: now then?
4: You should get ahead of the game.
1: Oh my goodness! Let me think about it. Many thanks, Stephen um, Hoffman, founder, CEO of uh, Founder Space, and uh, Professor Zeng Yi from the UN High Advisory Body on AI. With that, we come to the end of this edition of The Point. With me, Lucien. As always, you can follow me on Facebook and Twitter using the handle Machine in Beijing. On behalf of the whole team, thank you for joining us. You've got the point.